because it's, it's, been, it's been opened up. It's been made clear that there is no unbiased reporting. Yeah. And it's true, there is no such thing as unbiased reporting. I am biased, I try to correct my biases in my reporting, but yes, I come from a point of view. And, and I think the role of a responsible journalist is to always be aware of their bias, his or her biases, and, and correct them or compensate for them. That's Aaron Baker, the Time Magazine Africa correspondent and my guest today. This is the Generation Africa podcast, and I'm Tim Alba, your host. Generation Africa is a podcast dedicated to the African continent and the game changers, entrepreneurs, and social activists driving change and creativity across the African continent. Erin, as you might have heard, is an American, but as the Time Africa correspondent, offers a unique insight into the happenings on the continent. Today, we're going to discuss her career in journalism, her favorite stories from across Africa, how she balances life and the demands of her career, journalism as a boys' club, her time as a war reporter, and we're also going to look at how living with an immune-compromised partner during COVID-19 has affected her and her family. Just as a bit of background, I first met Erin about 15 years ago when we were both working in Afghanistan. I was a freelance journalist just cutting my teeth in the game, and she was already writing for time. She's done some really important stories, and I really hope you enjoy today's interview. So Erin, yeah, thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me. I was, I was just thinking back as I was researching this sort of this podcast, I was thinking back to when we first met in Afghanistan almost 15 years ago. You know, I, I was sort of a freelance journalist just starting out and you were already established then, but I've, I've sort of watched your career since then and it's gone from strength to strength. And today, you know, among other things, you're the Africa Bureau Chief and, and correspondent for Time Magazine. And I just wondered if you could talk about that a bit and, and, and what that means. You know, I mean, a lot of people out there probably don't understand what a bureau chief does. They probably don't understand what the Africa correspondent does. So uh, yeah, I, just, just a bit of background on, on you and, and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I've been working now for um, almost 20 years as a correspondent for time. Uh, Afghanistan was my first major posting, um, my first big story. Before I started about Africa, I'll just talk about the difference between the two. Afghanistan and Pakistan, which was my beat back then, was at that time was a place of global importance. Everybody cared what was going on. There were American troops there. Um, the nuclear arms nation next door uh, was very much of the topic. And I was writing constantly on this very precise topic, Afghanistan, Pakistan, US relations, military presence there. Uh, fast forward to now here in Africa where I am expected to pay the same amount of fine-grained attention, but on a continent that has 54 countries. Uh, the other difference is, sadly, Africa does not occupy the same sphere of interest for a global audience that Afghanistan and Pakistan did. Uh, Africa, to many people, is a side thought. It is a a continent where people I call it Africa instead of thinking about the countries in Africa. Um, and when they think about Africa as a continent or the countries within, it's also often a place that is defined by famine, war, corrupt governments, uh, even by the U.S. president as shithole countries. Um, <laughs> I'd like to say that he's an outlier in that, but I do suspect that that is largely the attitude about the continent. So my job 
while I've been covering this now, and it's been uh, five and some years, almost six years now, is to tell the story that goes beyond those stereotypes, to tell them in a way that brings each country and its individual characteristics and its individual issues to the forefront. But also, in a way that I didn't have to do with Afghanistan and Pakistan, is I have to make it relevant to an audience in Europe or America. And I think that's a very different way of approaching journalism than, than I had to when I was covering the Middle East or, or Pakistan, Afghanistan. Yeah, sure. And I mean, on a practical level, like you say, 54 countries, how does that work? I mean, how do you gather these stories? How do you, you know, I mean, if there's something going on in Sudan or something in Ethiopia or something in Congo, I mean, how do you find out about them? How do you research them? And I mean, particularly now, I mean, that must have, during COVID, must have become even more complicated. Uh, a lot. Yeah, it is complicated. Uh, my secret, my little tiny secret that I haven't even told my bosses is I have a Google alert on every single country in Africa. And I wake up every morning and I go through every single Google alert. And I don't always read every story. I can't read every story. But I spend a good four hours of every day just identifying interesting stories, strings to pull, um, themes to look at, and just to be kind of aware of what's going here. Uh, it's just one person, me, covering the continent. Uh, I don't have any fixers. I'm sorry, I have lots of fixers. I don't have any stringers, so I can't really call up anyone and say, can you do and this And the difference between a, a fixer and a stringer, for those oh. who don't know? Sorry, so a fixer is the most important thing you can have as a journalist, a uh, foreign correspondent. A fixer is the person who helps you get contacts, who will translate, who will help you navigate a country you've never been to, who will make you understand it. It's somebody that you hire, um, usually before you get on the ground and you develop a relationship with him or her to, to help guide you, to be your guide through the story. Uh, a stringer is someone that you've hired that's usually a journalist, but that's in place. I mean, you can hire them to do a story or to report to you. Um, we, most of the media organizations, especially small ones like Time, don't have the budget to keep stringers um, on, on staff or, or on retainer anymore. Um, so if something big happens in Burkina Faso, if I want to do a story, usually I have to identify someone that's on the ground and um, hire them to do some work for me or just interview them or you know, something along those lines. And a lot of my coverage in Africa has been by telephone because the other thing about covering Africa is it's really hard to get from like one country to another. A lot of times yeah. I have to fly through Belgium to get to Rwanda. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. I mean, maybe let's go back a bit and talk about your sort of entry into journalism. And, you know, you mentioned that Afghanistan was your first story, your first big, your first big story, your first term. And, you know, I mean, I think something I didn't really appreciate at the time is, is what a boys club uh, journalism is. And, and, you know, as a man and as a white man, I mean, you know, really, I was, I was lucky in a lot of ways. And I wondered if you could talk about that and sort of breaking into journalism as a woman. And then on top of that, going to somewhere like Afghanistan, where, you know, I mean, the treatment of women is, is, is sort of very difficult anyway. Um, 
I mean, how, how, how did you get around that? And how did you find that? I mean, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, I, definitely, Afghanistan, any conflict is a boys club uh, or was. I think things are changing. I mean, it's now been 15 some years, but uh, yes. I mean, and there's a couple of reasons for that. There, historically, journalism has been, or foreign correspondents are male dominated. Uh, because of the job and because of gender expectations, uh, you know, it's, it's a job you, can, you probably wouldn't be able to do if you had kids, especially 20 years ago. Uh, and so that sort of pre-selected, men would choose, choose it because it didn't infringe on family lives. War zones, you add on top of that, the danger perception, the fact that it's a conflict area, I think also limited the number of women who editors felt comfortable sending out because of notions of, of what women were capable of or could handle or what they covered well. I mean, women have been covering conflict since the Civil War. I could probably name every single one up until the Afghan conflict. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there was a sense that women didn't cover conflict and that started breaking probably in the 90s when you started getting more and more women uh, photographers. And I think they paved the way for women print correspondence in, a, in larger numbers. But I think gender did play a role in the way I got to Afghanistan because it was 2003, we had been, the Americans had been in Afghanistan uh, since 2001 and time since, you know, huge, resources to cover the Afghan war, um, including an entirely male bureau, until Iraq happened. The minute the US invaded Iraq, all of the big correspondents went to Iraq and nobody was left to cover Afghanistan, which was when I raised my hand and said, let me go. And that's how I got there because nobody was interested anymore. I, I picked like the little war after yeah. after the big war of iraq and that's i mean so i think that the fact that i was a woman was kind of one of the reasons why i got there in the first place getting there and covering it especially in the beginning when it was very much a military story i mean how was that you know dealing with the military i mean i remember going on embeds as they're called you know when you when you get to spend time with the army and you go out with them on operations and i, I always found it quite fun you know you'd hang out with guys that sort of it's like it's like a it is as we said a boys club and you know you're flying in helicopters and you're you're going on patrols i mean i imagine your experience as a woman is is very different and i think could be at times intimidating and i i, I mean maybe you could talk about that a bit yeah i mean it wasn't any different it was still fun oh i love the helicopters i love the patrols i love the camaraderie i really enjoyed my times with military both british afghan and american um, even the Romani Romanians at one point. Uh, but there's always a difference. I mean, I remember the first time I rocked up to um, a forward operating base and I was the first female correspondent any of these guys had seen. And it was, I mean, uh, first of all, there was no female toilet. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, there was no female bunk. So they were, but they were very kind. I mean, the soldiers, they, they took one of the bunk beds, they gave me a bottom bunk and then they, they uh, hung up their sleeping bags all around the side to give me some privacy. 
And then they were always like, well, okay, if you're going to go to the, the toilet or use the shower, you know, just let us know and one of us will stand guard. So they were very considerate, but there's always a wall and you're always like, you're always separated. So I, part of me was jealous that I couldn't do the hanging out with the men that male correspondents could do. Male correspondents could get much more information, military information, uh, because they were, they could put in the time. You could hang out in a bar in, in Kabul or in a fob without worrying about sending the wrong message. You know, I always had to be a little bit more reserved. I couldn't laugh as much as I wanted. You just, you're a, a sole woman in a camp full of anywhere from 100 to 800 men. You have to be careful. I'm there, even though like I trust our men in uniform, I also don't. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But that said, sometimes I could use my gender as an advantage because less so with the with the American or British military, but Afghan and Pakistani military would not take me seriously. And while it's frustrating, they would also be much more loose with their information because yeah. I didn't think I would understand it. So I would able I was able to use it. I think they were less guarded with me than they would have been with uh, a white male. So that was helpful. But also the thing that I started, I mean, even though I was frustrated with the military side and I didn't have nearly as much access as say you did or any of the other male correspondents that, that I knew, I also had access to half the country that no man ever would be able to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. went into every kitchen, every woman's quarters, talked to women, and the stories were so much richer for mm. that. And no, no other guy could get it. So that was a yeah. huge advantage. I mean, I don't think, you know, in, in, my whole, in my whole time in Afghanistan, which is sort of over a five-year period, I mean, I never saw the female side of a house or I never went into a kitchen when there was women there. I mean, after a certain age, women just sort of disappeared to men. You know, as soon yeah. as they hit puberty, they're, they're gone. I mean, you just don't see them. So the only ones you'd see were sort of either Western educated or, or, or professionals. And you really can't get an idea of what life is like, I think, for, for, for half the population, like you say. I mean, I think that that was one of my one of the most amazing stories you did. I mean, could, could you talk about that a bit? I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of talking about Afghanistan. I know we'll get back on to <laughs> onto Africa, but I think it's an incredible story that you covered. And I just want to talk about that, the one about BB. Bibi Aisha, um, and uh, really, I think out of all the stories in Afghanistan, that's one that really stands out for me and, and tells us so much about the country and tells us so much about the situation for women. Yeah, that was it's so funny because we're going right back to where we were in 2009, aren't we? Um, so yeah, just background, 2009, uh, the US military was planning on pulling out um, or pulling out significant numbers of of troops. And uh, the story that I wanted to tell was not pro or, or con US military. It had really nothing to do about it. But when we started talking about a peace deal in Afghanistan, so often that peace deal did not include women's voices. Women were not at the negotiating table. So the story I wanted to look at was what does it mean for women? Uh, and particularly because one of the reasons why we went into Afghanistan, one of the cautious belly 
that we used, when I say we, I mean Americans, used to get into Afghanistan was to uh, liberate women, to have them throw off their burqas, to, you know, to be free. And I mean, I kind of think it was all BS. It was, it was good for magazine copy, but I don't think it was, that's not the real reason why we went into Afghanistan. Let's, let's be serious. <laughs> but all of a sudden when we were leaving or talking about leaving Afghanistan in 2009, women's rights and, and the gains that women had achieved over those nine years were all of a sudden dispensable. And so what I looked at was what that would mean for politicians, actors, athletes, and just women in, in uh, conservative areas. And so, yes, Bibi Aisha was one such woman who um, had had her nose cut off by the Taliban as a form of punishment for running away from her husband. And yeah, I met her in a uh, shelter for, for women uh, victims of uh, domestic violence uh, when she was already partway through um, recovery and told her story. And I, th I think that was, obviously, I w no man would have been able to get into that room with her. Um, and it was through sitting through several conversations with her that I was able to kind of tease out her story and not just the salacious part of it, but what it meant to her. And how disappointed she was and how fearful she was at the idea of, of a return or a, the idea of, of what losing the progress would mean for, for women like her. She's, by the way, I think still in Queens uh, in America, uh, last I heard, doing quite all right and with reconstructive surgery, so has a nose again. <laughs> Good. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the amazing thing about the, the type of journalism you do and that I was always sort of jealous of as a as a sort of newspaper journalist. I mean, you, you have the space to, to tell these stories that pull a, a number of themes together and, and can really explore, explore the subject. And, and I just wondered, like, sort of in the African context, you know, moving back to Africa, what, what are some of the stories you've been proudest of? And what are some of the stories where, I mean, we talked about the, the sort of preconceptions people, or, the, or, or yeah, preconceived conceptions people have of, of Africa. So, I mean, what are a couple of stories that you've sort of worked on where you've really tried to dispel that, those sort of ideas? I don't know if I would say dispel those ideas, but maybe unpack them a little more. Um, one story I really enjoyed working on and telling was a story, a very small story out of Sierra Leone. Um, a couple of years ago now, uh, a kid, 16 years old, found a- oh, the diamond. Diamonds, yes, a yeah. massive diamond, 400, I can't remember now, 402 carats. It was 209 carats. Was it 209? Okay, yeah. it was big. And yeah, so the story, but it wasn't the story of finding it. It was the story of two stories, which is what does diamond wealth really bring to the communities that mine it? And the answer in Sierra Leone and, and most of, of West Africa where the diamonds are is not much. Uh, so it was just examining like where the money goes and, and how it goes. The, the diamond was sold in America uh, at auction. But then the second smaller story is what does it mean when somebody has, has, has not had any opportunities for education, so turns to diamond mining um, as a very you know, hand-to-mouth existence, and then falls into immense wealth but doesn't have the education to know how to spend it. Yeah. And the kid that found that- What was me, the first? 
What was the first thing he bought? Do you remember? I think he said a motorcycle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so it was just watching. I mean, to this now he, I mean, last time I talked to him three months ago was his birthday in March. Um, he had almost no money left. He had spent all of that money trying to get a visa to go to Canada to, he was thinking about actually taking the migrant, the overland migrant route to Europe because even though the money so he had gained think, was huge. Yeah, go ahead. So I think, I think the diamond sold for something like 6 million, which was, which was below what they thought it was going to sell for. But like, yeah. out of that 6 million, how much did he get? I mean, what was his sort of um, reward? Okay, so the, the breakdown of the diamond was, yes, it sold for 6 million, but uh, because it technically belonged to the government of Sierra Leone, I think about 4 million of that went to the government, which was supposed to spend 10% of that money on the village where the diamond was, was found. Questions remain whether that money was actually spent. Uh, I can't, I haven't followed it up on it recently, so I don't know if the promised hospital and electrical grid, grid has, and school has been installed or not uh, at, at this point. That was the plan. Uh, and then because the kid was working with a team of other miners and he had a sponsor, he ended up not getting very much of the money at all into his own pocket. Although what he got, uh, I want to say $20,000 in the end, which is what he got out of it. It doesn't sound like much in an American context, but in his context, that was a huge amount of money. But in his context, when you have wealth, you need to, to share it with your community, with your family, and it very quickly dissipated. He bought a, a house for, for his uh, family, and he bought a house for himself, and then I, he started getting scammed. He, he wasn't he didn't have the education to really know how to invest the money. And, I, mean, I think he'd been working as a miner since he was 12, hadn't he? So he, yeah, had, yeah. he had sort of an education and probably quite a poor education in rural Sierra Leone anyway. So he can't yeah. read. Yeah. 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 And he was scammed because some visa immigration lawyer was saying like, okay, we're going to get you a, a, an education visa in Canada. You know, here's a university that's going to accept you. And, and he paid lots of money for this lawyer. But, I mean, I don't know for certain that the lawyer was a scam, but I can't imagine any Canadian university is about to accept a student that can't actually read and write in English yeah. or any language. So, yeah. 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 So I, what I liked about that story is that it, it told, it looked beneath the surface of diamond wealth of West Africa and just told so many more layers of, of what it means to be living in Sierra Leone, a country with vast diamond wealth and no investment in its people. So that was one. And then, I mean, another story that I thought was very powerful, but perpetuated every negative stereotype we have about Africa was about um, victims, or I should say survivors of um, rape in a war zone. So looking at specifically the crime of uh, gender violence uh, in conflict, which is... Um, Forbidden by the Geneva Accords, obviously, but also hasn't been really prosecuted anywhere. And that's only starting to change. Um, and this story I did was out of DRC, um, looking at, uh, sorry, was DRC and at that point South Sudan, looking at women who had been victims of um, rape as a war crime. 
and how they how they kind of navigated life and they they were all of the women i interviewed were pregnant it's yeah. looking at what their I mean, features held the, the dlc's got the sort of highest highest rate in the world hasn't it i mean it's a truly like shocking statistic well uh in terms of conflict i yeah, think south, south africa might give them a run for the money unfortunately uh, okay. in non-conflict scenario but again I, I imagine that's a story where where as a woman you you have an insight into it and you get access that as a man you know that that is just is an area that we firstly i don't imagine could really understand and wouldn't bring the same empathy to the story but also just from a practical point of view wouldn't get the same access yeah, I mean, again, this was one of those stories where I spent weeks with with the the women that I was interviewing in, in each of the countries and working with a photographer who is also a woman and very sensitive to these subjects and approaching it in a way that is not salacious or or sensationalist, but rather just like tell me your story, and that requires spending time and that requires a degree of comfort that I think uh, my being a woman gave me. I don't, I don't, it would, it's difficult for me to see how a man would be able to do that story. Yeah. And Aaron, in terms of safety, I mean, I remember when I was in Afghanistan, my mum used to have sleepless nights. I mean, you know, I mean, we're older now, our parents, but our parents still worry and our families still worry. And how, and how dangerous is it being a sort of correspondent in, in Africa and what sort of, what precautions do you have to take and, and how do you deal with sort of family and, and their kind of expectations and just everything? I mean, how do you deal with it? I, I mean, I trust my gut. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it, it's probably no different here than it was in Afghanistan. I mean, yes, I'm taking risks. Uh, I have gone into war zones here in, in Africa and Nigeria and South Sudan. Um, you know, it's the same way you kind of, how you judge the safety situation when you were in Afghanistan. You, you listen to what everybody's saying around you. You rely enormously on your fixer, who has a much better antenna out for, for what's risky. Uh, so in the conflict areas, I would say it's about the same. Um, otherwise, when I'm out on my own um, in Uganda and all the places that I've covered, it's it's deciding who I can trust um, and, you know, always keeping my eyes open, uh, not taking it. I don't, and this is where maybe gender plays a role. Like I have a male correspondent friend who will go explore every nightclub in Kinshasa or Addis Ababa, and he'll be out till 2 a.m. And that's something I just won't do on my own. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. And so I think there are, you know, there's some some limitations to what I feel comfortable doing as a woman. Other women might feel totally fine with that. I, I don't personally. Um, so, yeah, it's each situation I have to judge differently and, and I'm aware of what's going on. I, I do my research ahead of time. I also if I'm in a sketchy hotel room, I make sure I can lock the door. <laughs> I <laughs> make sure I'm friends with the front desk and I tip yeah. liberally. Um, I tip a lot. And have you had any have, have you had any close calls? Uh, yeah, I've been followed. I've been harassed. Um, I've been in Africa. I mean, Afghanistan. Many, many, many. Yeah. 
Yeah, but uh, not so much in Africa. Um, I think I'm probably more cautious because in Afghanistan and Pakistan, I had two countries and I kind of knew them very well. I could speak the mm. language more or less. Here, I don't know as much. And I, you know, it's so many countries. I'm in a new situation every time. So I tend to be much more cautious in what I do. So uh, I think that has protected me because I don't have a false sense of security that I would have had, say, in Pakistan. Uh, mm. Yeah. I am. Um... You know, I mean, thinking about COVID-19 and, and in fact, that has on reporting. I mean, you wrote a wonderful article that, that for me, really sort of personalized. I mean, for you, for you, it is very personal. I mean, to me, your, your husband, um, the article I read sort of really, really hit home because it, it was so personal. I mean, could you talk about that article a bit and, and a bit about Tamim's situation and how you're sort of, how you're dealing with that and, 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 and what it means as a sort of, as a journalist, but also as a, as a wife and as a person? Well, yeah, so to me, my husband has an autoimmune disorder, um, a very rare and unusual one um, that started manifesting about four years ago. Um, and it was quite scary. We were in Africa already. Um, we're in, in Cape Town. And uh, so that, that was a scary time, especially when he was first diagnosed, but we managed to get a very good team of doctors around us, a lot of support. And, uh, and Tamim has an incredible strength that despite his physical, um, the physical implications was able to continue on taking care of our daughter and uh, kind of running our lives while I was constantly off reporting. So a, a lot of what I, how I've been able to deal with this is the fact that Tamim has been so strong in his, in his own uh, self and understanding of his illness. But uh, COVID-19 threw a real wrench into that because uh, the, co the people that have autoimmune, have immune, who are immunocompromised are most at risk. He's also older. He's, uh, okay, he's not in his 60s, but he's 57 at this point. So all these things actually raised the risk for him. And very early on, it was very clear that he we just could not risk um, letting him go out and be potentially exposed. Uh, so fortunately, around the time we started having these real concerns about how do we adjust in this, this time? How do we protect ourselves? How do we protect Tamim? How do I make sure I don't get sick so I don't expose him? Uh, South Africa's government uh, called for a lockdown. So it became a moot point. None of us could leave. <laughs> we were all stuck in the house and yeah. you no longer had these questions like, is it safe to see our friends? Is it safe to go out to eat? It was just like, no, it's not, and we're staying home. So I felt like the lockdown was a really positive thing for our family, if not for the economy of the country. And I adjusted very quickly. At the same time, because of the lockdown, there was no reporting for me to be doing. So there was never any uh, debate like, oh, should I go cover this story or should I stay home? Because there was no covering of stories to be done. I was doing it all by telephone. So it was a very quick adjustment to um, very much narrowing down our lives. I did the grocery shopping. I did all of the outdoor maintenance of, of whatever needed to be done for our family life. And we shrunk our lives down to you know, four walls. Now that the, the lockdown has been lifted, we are in a bit more of a ambiguous situation because we still very much need to protect Tamim. Uh, make sure that there's no exposure there. So even though 
all of our friends keep inviting us over for socially distanced dinners or play dates for our daughter. Uh, it's something that we're just not yet comfortable doing. I mean, mostly because South Africa, as, as you well know, like we did our lockdown early on and now the, the lockdown's lifted. I mean, we haven't reached our peak yet. I mean, we're, it's pretty much catastrophic here in the Western Cape. Uh, and I think in, you're in Durban area as well, it's getting pretty bad. We're running out of hospital rooms in Port Elizabeth. Uh, so this is not a time where you want to risk it. So even though yeah. technically we're open, uh, we're, our family is still very much acting like, you know, we're not taking any risks. So that means we're not going out. Uh, it's very socially isolating. Um, I can imagine, yeah. Fortunately, we like each other a lot, so. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is important, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, how, how have you sort of seen the response? Uh, you know, I mean, if, if we compare South Africa to America, for example, I mean, the response has been very different. I mean, South Africa's really gone for a hard lockdown. Yeah. What are your sort of thoughts on that? How do you think it's, how do you think it's been played? How do you think Ramaphosa's handled it? How do you, how do you see it playing out from here? Well, I mean, back in March, when we, when South Africa and Ramaphosa implemented the lockdown, I, I mean, I was texting friends and just like friends in, in New York uh, that was going through its own crisis saying like, I'm so glad we have this president. I will trade my president for the American president any day. Like we are doing the right thing. And I, and I to think be honest, really Aaron, you'd, you'd, yeah. you'd probably trade most presidents for your president. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair point. Fair point. No, you know, Magafoli can stay in Tanzania. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I thought that Ramaphosa did the right thing very early on. He stood up. He didn't gloss over the, the risks. Um, he made it clear that this was a, a nationwide effort. He brought everyone on board and everybody was on board. I think we all understood yeah. in South Africa that it was only through, uh, you know, a um, uh, kind of community sacrifice of of our of our you know personal lives that that we were going to be able to to defeat this and I think we all were on board for several weeks but then I mean there were some irrational decisions that were taken either actually not Ramaphosa but other elements of the government that that started that just stopped making sense the alcohol ban while I understand you know. Look, we don't need we don't need wine. Actually, we do need wine to get through a crisis like this. I did need wine. Sorry, <laughs> it was vital. But yeah. um, the cigarette ban didn't make sense, and you saw how something as irrational as a cigarette ban began to undermine confidence in the overall messaging by the government. And then it became like, not we're all in this together, but why are we being treated like school children? And I think at that point, it started to crumble and you stopped seeing confidence in the leadership. And when there's no confidence in leadership, that's when all the other things start falling apart. People don't follow the other common sense rules of social distancing, of wearing masks. Um, so I go out for a walk every morning with our family. We go, you know, the family goes out for a morning walk along the promenade and, uh, we all wear our masks and yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's hot. It's really hard to run in a mask, 
but I'm shocked by the number of people who are educated, who shoot no better, that aren't wearing masks. And it's, part of it is a, it can't happen to me. Part of it is, you know, why should I do this? Like, why should I infringe on my own personal liberties in order to protect other people? But I think part of it also has to do with the fact that we've lost confidence in the leadership to, yeah. to get us through this. And on top of that, you have the huge economic catastrophe. Um, while I think Ramaphosa's lockdown should have been implemented in the United States from day one, the way we did it here, the United States, at least, and Europe, as we saw, had the wealth to, to respond to the, the economic freefall. We don't have that here. And that is- There's been, no safety net. I there's, mean, there's no, no safety net. You know, there's no money for people who, you know, I mean, most people here, if they're not working, they're not, they're not making their they're daily not money. They're not eating. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, and I think, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the tragedy. And it's also the difficulty I imagine for you to sort of communicate to a Western audience who probably doesn't really understand that. They probably don't understand that if a guy, you know, a car guard or a, or a security guard or a bus, you know, somebody drives a bus or, or a truck driver, if they don't go to work that day, they don't eat. Uh, and, and so lockdown, and, lockdown for them is is basically starvation. Yeah, and it's it's even worse because like, I mean, I have a job through this, but can you imagine not being able to feed your kids? Like, forget yourself. I think any number of parents would gladly, you know, starve in order to feed their kids. But if you can't even do that, I mean, that that is, I think, the more important thing is this idea of of not being able to take care of your loved ones and, and mm. that you haven't seen so much, I think in Europe and in the Western COVID re um, reactions. I mean, you just, it's, it, okay, it's bad in some places, but not to the extent that it is here, that we're looking at entire swaths of, the, of Cape Town's population that just literally has it every day. What is heartening is the response in terms of those that can, the, the volunteer efforts, the feeding efforts, the the private sector approach to, to developing charity organizations and quickly and ramping up school feeding programs or replacements for school feeding programs, how restaurants were able to pivot very quickly to taking their goods or donations and using their facilities to cook food for soup kitchens. I mean, I found that very encouraging and nice to look at, but it's also a pittance compared to what is really necessary for South Africa to survive this. And so now we've realized that we can't afford that lockdown. And that is the lockdown that was preventing the spread of the virus. So we lifted the lockdown and now the virus is spreading. So now you have the economic freefall and a virus and still no employment for the car guards, the, the restauranters. I mean, all of this is still in decline. Tourism. I mean, all of these yeah. hand to mouth jobs are still gone and people have to worry about getting sick. So that's, that's the real situation we're in today. And I mean, how do you see that unfolding? How do you see, I mean, what's next? You know, I mean, the virus is obviously going to spread. It, it spreads everywhere. Do we see a situation like Brazil? Do we see, I mean, is there any, are there any mitigating factors that, that might sort of help Africa? I mean, can you, can you see any, any positives? Well, I'm not an epidemic. I can never say that word. I'm not a public health specialist. <laughs> yeah. Um, what 
I, the ones that I have spoken to, you know, the silver lining is we, Africa is by continent wide, we're, we're young. It's the average age is 19. And by and large, the most severe cases of COVID affect people over the age of 60, of which we have relatively fewer compared to Europe. So that is one thing. Um, so I think that the death toll, everyone predicts that the death toll will be significantly lower. That, that's a saving grace. But I think that's in many ways the least of it because the economic free fall is so bad. I mean, we're, we're talking about, I, I think it was, I mean, the reports were coming out yesterday from WHO and from IFAD and World Bank. I mean, just we're, we're going back 20 years in terms of the progress that we had been made in poverty alleviation. Yeah. And how, how do you recoup that? I mean, that's where we, this is where we should be really, we, African nations should be really focusing leadership is like, how do we pivot? How do we rebuild stronger in a way that protects the economy? I'm not saying like GDP is not the answer. Like increasing GDP is actually not the answer. The, the, the question that, that needs to be being asked right now is like, what do we do to actually help fix that safety net? Um, to help with food security, to help with economic and employment security, with basic levels of education so that we're not so reliant on hand-to-mouth employment uh, to, get, yeah. to get the continents through. So I guess I don't have an answer for what this looks like in Africa in, in five months, 10 months, uh, until we get a vaccine or a treatment. Um, I guess my, my answer is like, let's look further and start asking the question of like, how do we not how do we stop this from happening again, but how do we make sure that when it does happen again, because it will, that these nations are strong enough to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, and robust enough, yeah. Yeah, resilient. That's always the, the favorite yeah. word of the day is resilience. <laughs> how do you build resilience? Yeah, I mean, moving on from COVID, I mean, something I wanted to discuss with you, Aaron, was, you know, growing up, I always trusted the press, you know, and, and the press was always trusted. And what, what really worries me today is this whole sort of fake news thing. And I mean, seemingly educated people seem to think there's an agenda within the media to spread lies. And I mean, firstly, I just, I just don't get where that comes from. I, don't, I, I really don't understand why people believe that. I mean, I find it terrifying and I find it, you know, I, I mean, to think that there's some agenda within the media to spread things that are damaging to the general population just strikes me as very bizarre and uh, yeah just false you know i mean it's just something that I, I i just really don't understand um and i wondered if you could talk a bit about that and, and it's quite a new thing i mean we know where it sort of comes from and and but we i've seen it spread you know to seemingly educated people who should know better and i wondered like what the impact on your job is of that of, of, I mean do people think now that you're writing lies and you've got some agenda and and how does that you know how does that impact you when you're approaching people and when you're approaching stories you know, a lot of questions hold on okay. I mean first of all this this belief that the media is writing lies is not coming out of a vacuum um, yeah I think that messaging has it didn't start in the United States, it definitely started, but that starts from 
illiberal governments that don't like the reporting that the media has done and have thus perpetuated this idea that the media is lying, which is one, that those whispers amongst illiberal governments have been amplified by the American leadership, uh, the American president, not leadership, uh, in a self-serving way. But I also think that there, and it's hard because the, the UK media has always been very divided. There's conservative and there's liberal media. And so I yeah. think there was always, I would say there would be less reliability of like a straightforward media analysis in the UK where you could really believe that the media is like, the, the media always had an agenda in the UK, I think less so in America until the advent of Fox News and conservative talk um, radio and television in the United States where we started seeing that divide. And when you see that divide of the two, the, this partisan divide or this you know, conceptual divide, then the two sides start poking holes in each other's arguments saying, well, you're wrong, you're, you misinterpreted. And so the moment we start fighting with each other, the two, these two opposing sides to the media, I think the more we, I'm not very articulate on this, the more we break down you know, public faith in media because it's, it's, been, it's been opened up, it's been made clear that there is no unbiased reporting. Yeah. And it's true, there is no such thing as unbiased reporting. I am biased, I try to correct my biases in my reporting, but yes, I come from a point of view. And, and I think the role of a responsible journalist is to always be aware of their bias, his or her biases and, and correct them or compensate for them. Uh, so there's that. Then I think this also goes with a just general generational distrust in authority figures. So that could be your public health officials, your leadership, uh, science, because science has made some mistakes and the leadership has made mistakes and public health officials have made mistakes. We didn't, we should, we weren't supposed to wear masks at the beginning, right? And now we are. Yeah. So, so there's this. But there's also a sense that like there is so much craziness going on in the world today and if you just accept as a normal civilian in the middle of it all that just the world is chaotic and that's the way life is it's very destabilizing it is much more it, i think it, it learns more of a sense of security if you can blame it on them it yeah. they so it's, it's more comforting to be able to blame someone else so i think that also feeds into this desire for a conspiracy theory to somehow encapsulate all the things that are going wrong in one big conspiracy, then you feel like you can control it or you feel like you can, you've identified it, you've named it and, and it's something that's less threatening. So there's that, okay. So then you wanted to ask about how does that impact reporting now? Yeah, how, how it impacts your reporting and, and, and the negative sort of implications of that. I mean, you know, if, if, if people think you've got an agenda, do you, do you face hostility? Yeah, I mean, we've seen attacks on the press across Africa, you know, Tanzania, yeah. and and I just wondered what how, how that sort of impacted you. Well, the attacks you're seeing on the press in Africa are local press, by and large. 
which there, there are exceptions, the Russian journalists and DRC, or sorry, and CAR being an exception, but by and large, and because local journalists are more of a threat to the leadership of those countries or, or whoever it is that um, does not want to be called out. So while local journalists are bearing the brunt uh, in many severe ways, jail, disappearances, torture, we're seeing it all. And we, I feel like it's on, it's on the increase over the past several years that I've been here. The foreign media is not so affected. What happens to us is we don't get visas. It's very hard to get a visa for DRC anymore. Uh, you know, very South Sudan. All these places, it's just much harder to get a visa than it used to be, mostly because we were going in liberally because nobody paid attention to the foreign media and then yeah. we started doing stories that kind of blew things up. Uh, I don't think I'll ever be able to get back into South Sudan again. Uh, DRC is probably going to be difficult. But uh, so on that side, I think I'm not, I'm not particularly worried for my own health and, and security on that side. Uh, but in terms of how people treat us, I think that that does that does come in. Um, it, it comes in questions of not so much what I'm saying is wrong, but more why are you doing this? You're making money out of my story, like you don't, you know, pay me. So it comes into a sort of much more of a Nothing's transactional. Nothing's going to change. Yeah. 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 So why should I do this? So why don't you pay me? Which, of course, as a journalist, I, I can't pay. So yeah. that's how it's And South Sudan, uh, South Sudan and DRC, why, why are you not allowed back there? What were the stories you, you covered there? Uh, South Sudan, I did a story about a massive uh, war crime in which um, a group of 64 men were rounded up from a uh, uh, from an opposition village and locked into a shipping container and everybody assumed that all 64 of the men died but in fact one 11 year boy lived nobody knew about him so i okay. went up and i was actually i i was going up to report the story about the 64 people who died and then when i got there Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people on the ground were like, well, you know, one kid survived. Do you want to meet him? Oh, wow. Which also speaks to the point of you have to get on the ground and report on the ground because if you're not on the ground, yeah. you're not getting the story. Anyway, so I yeah. happened to get that with, with this photographer I was working with. And so we were able to tell his story. That was not, of course, a story that the government at the time wanted to get out because yeah. obviously yeah. it's a massive war crime. So, yeah. So that I don't think yeah. it will be easy to go back. Um, yeah. DRC just reporting on uh, corruption in uh, the gold gold mining industry. I think okay. also okay. didn't go down well. Yeah. But Aaron, I mean, talking about this, you know, sixty-four guys being killed in the container and re reporting on that story. In terms of your mental health and in terms of sort of. It, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people struggle to switch off from work. <laughs> I, I imagine for you, that's that's very different. You know, I mean, when you've got these sort of haunting stories in your head, how do you deal with that? And 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 is it something? I mean, you can talk about. Is it something you can talk to? Is it is it something you're aware of, or or or, or is work just work? And at the end of the day, when you close your computer, 
that's it. You, you managed to disassociate yourself. Really. What, what does happen, though, is in an interview like that with the boy or with the women who were raped, um, I, I type my notes. I always have a laptop. So when I'm typing the interview, I'm essentially turning off my brain and transcribing. Yeah. And so I'm able to disassociate in the moment. But when I go back through and read the transcript is when I actually have a really tough time. Okay. I mean, I think there's a performative aspect of interviewing where you have to constantly be thinking about the next question. You have to be measuring the stress level of your subjects in, in these particular circumstances, making sure that that boy is okay, like that he's not being re-traumatized by my questions. Like I'm, 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 I'm carrying the weight of his emotions at that time and taking care of him or, or the women I'm interviewing. So I'm not thinking so much about what it means. I'm too busy yeah. projecting out. And then when I go back and I read through the interviews and it's like, holy shit, I can't believe this yeah. happened. And then, especially with 11 year old, I mean, I have a kid, like I just, I yeah, put my it's... own daughter in that situation and it's just, and then that's when I start crying. Um, so yeah, that's very much, usually that happens when I'm not home because I yeah. will do all that work when I'm out reporting. And then when I come home, I've had some time distance. And then the way I sort of process those emotions is in writing the story and making sure that I'm telling the story in a way that is honest and true to the experience of the person I was interviewing. So I'm trying to make sure that that emotion and that trauma that they went through is not wasted and that it's actually useful, not useful, that it's illustrative of what they went through and that I can tell their story and honor it instead of just using it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I think that comes through in your writing, you know, I mean, you're writing, you know, we were talking about the, the, the guy with the diamond. I mean, I read that story and it's just, it's, it's, you really feel like you're, you're there. And I think that's, that's great. You feel like you're, you're going through that experience as much as you can by not actually being there and, and, and just by reading it. But I think that's a real, a real skill. And it's, I think something you've got as a journalist and something I, I, I never really had. I never really felt like I could sort of get across in the same way you do what, what people are, what people are actually going through. So I think that's, I think that's something you're definitely achieving. Um, well, I think that's also something that's really important in this part, part of the world, because it's the only way you're going to break through the, the stereotypes is to really just break down it, to tell the stories of what it's like to be X person in Y place. I think, Yeah. I mean, that's the journalism I love to do. Like, frankly, yeah. I shouldn't say this on a podcast, but like I would much rather go interview a poor diamond miner than the president of any country. You know, I, I, yeah. I want to tell those stories. I don't want to tell a public figure stories because that story has been told. Yeah. I want to tell the stories of people that can't tell their own story. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So just a couple of quick fire questions um, to finish off on. What's your favorite African country and why? Nigeria. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 
it drives me, I think it's because it's a love-hate thing. It drives me up the wall. It is, I mean, the, the levels of petty corruption. I mean, even just yeah. thinking of going through the airport right now, my hackles are <laughs> raised. Like, I'm just like, I'm about to punch the customs guys that's asking for a bribe. But also like, and I don't even like Nigerian food. Sorry, Nigerians, yeah. I really don't. But, um, well, there's a few things I like, but I just love the energy and the complete willingness to laugh at everything that my, my Nigerian yeah. friends have. Um, I mean, and they live it, and I don't want to use bad language on your podcast, but like they live in the most effed up situations imaginable, either in Lagos or Kano or, you know, at, at where Boko Haram is in Borno. And yet there's a sense of humor and they're like, we're gonna, we're gonna find a way to get through this. It's that just absolute desire to defeat all obstacles that I love. And so it's like really energizing to be there. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah I, I pull my hair out, but I come back and I can't wait to go, go back to Nigeria again. <laughs> um, so if someone wanted to, okay, so two questions. What's your favorite book on Africa? And if someone wanted to learn more about the continent, what book would you recommend? Wow, okay, you're gonna have to go with me to look at my bookshelf. Um, <laughs> like on the continent as a whole? Or, or not on the continent as a whole, because there are probably very few books that do justice to the, to the continent, yeah. but if they wanted to learn something specific to, to Africa. Well, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the survey books, like all of Africa. Um, and I'm not much of a history reader. Like I read it for work, but I don't take pleasure. I think what I really like is the fiction. It's reductive to say Harry Potter in Nigeria because it's not, but it looks in the way that Harry Potter books take mythologies of Anglo-Saxon world, our magic, our wizards. Yeah. Uh, there's a series of novels that takes Nigerian mythologies and translates them into a contemporary setting. So you're looking at it not as a distant mythology, but as like, yeah, wow. so, so Nigerian, like the idea of like what a Nigerian evil monster would be, like as opposed to like a Voldemort in, in yeah. the Western canon, like a Nigerian evil monster in, in these novels is a whirlwind of biting, slicing, stinging bugs. And I love that. I love this idea of like the most terrifying thing is something that makes my skin crawl, but it's not in the Western canon of what yeah. evil entity. And who's the be. author? Um, oh, you're just gonna, one second. Uh, I'll give you, I, I want to check it out. It's, uh, the books are called uh, Akata Witch. It's one series. Yeah, Kata Witch, and her name is oh Neri or um, Okorafor. So that's one series, and um, another one uh, is called uh, what? I mean, there's some amazing African literature. I mean, my the book I always recommend when I'm asked about Zimbabwe is, is a book called The Last Resort by Douglas Rogers. And I don't know if you've read it, but it's no. an absolutely incredible book. It's, it's about this, this guy's parents who owned a backpacker's lodge outside of Mutari. And it was when the land invasions were going on and, and hyperinflation was going on. And, and these two, you know, his, his parents who were probably in their 60s at the time and, and what they had to do to hold on to their farm 
you know, so they went from hosting kind of German backpackers and in bikinis by their swimming pool to illegal gold miners to then, you know, they then put up the opposition uh, politicians for a while. And it's just this incredible book that really gives you a flavor of Zimbabwe, but it's told with like such humor. And, 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 that, and that's something I love about Zimbabwe is that whatever's going on and whatever strife they're going through, the people have a sense of humor, you know, and, and yeah. it's that sort of, it, it just, and it just reads so well. It's just, it's, it's, an, it's an incredible book that I'd really recommend. Yeah, I mean, that, but that's the thing. These are the, I think, in a way, the stories that stick. And in a way, I try to tell those kind of stories in my nonfiction, but these personality-driven narratives. I mean, Bessie Head for South Africa, uh, you know, even Half of the Other Sun back to Nigeria. Like, these are stories that are based on real events, like, like The Last Resort, but kind of flesh it out with a, a fictionalized response but the characters are themselves Zimbabwean or Nigerian mm. or you know whatever country it may be and I I find that's much more illustrative of of what's going on and and more because there's such a strong narrative like you whip through and you absorb it you're living this experience as opposed yeah. to a much more distance reading a non-fiction book on uh, I don't know you know the new economy of Africa or whatever it is it's much better to live it that said I forgot yeah. there was one of my favorite books that's written out of Africa in the last 20 years is uh, Sunday at the Pool in Kigali. That is okay. a remarkable yeah. read and reads like fiction because it is a narrative that keeps you turning the pages in a way that most history books aren't. Yeah. And if you give me more time, I'll, I'll, I can go through my other books. I just have to look downstairs at <laughs> the bookshelf because I won't. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. Pleasure. That was really, really, really insightful and always good to, uh, to catch up with you. Thanks for joining me today. I really hope you enjoyed the chat with Aaron. I'm going to put uh, some of the links to our articles we discussed and, and the books we discussed in the show notes below. So you can, you can check those out. And, uh, you know, again, if you enjoyed today's show, and I really hope you did, it would be great if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast, leaving a review or sharing it with friends. I'd really appreciate it and it would really help us grow. I'm also going to put my email in the show notes below. So if you've got any comments, it'll be great to hear them. So thanks again, guys, and, and bye.